0: have some exciting news to share with you in this episode. Today, I am welcoming Danielle Spenson onto the show to chat all things perimenopause. Personally, I find that perimenopause is a confusing time for a lot of women and in clinic, I'd go as far as saying many women are resistant to hearing the term. In this week's episode, I hope that we can shed some light on the different hormonal changes happening across this time what this means for you in terms of symptoms and what you can be doing if you're in the thick of it right now or wanting to be proactive about a smooth transition. The exciting news that I have to share with you is that I'm not just welcoming Danielle onto this episode but also into the business. You'll be hearing and seeing a lot more of her and as you'll hear in this episode, she's an incredible practitioner. She's had an incredible career to date, and I'm truly honored to be working alongside her. You can now find Danielle in clinic, and you can book in a complimentary consultation with her via sylindouglas.com forward slash links if you'd like to discuss working with her. I hope that you love this episode just as much as me. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selenedouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to the show. Hi, Selen. Lovely to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, We've got some news to share and I'm excited to talk to you today. So, just to start out with, I'd love if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and, um, yeah, how you became a nutritionist, your journey thus far.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so I I guess I, from a young age, I'd say Salen, always had um, an interest in in health. It was something that came very naturally to me. I played a lot of sport when I was younger and then I got to an age where I really wanted to understand how to, cure my body and feel good, um, from that. So that just really sort of led actually after I finished school, I had a lot of my own, um, personal health issues and it really was that turning point in my life where I was kind of faced with the conventional treatment path, um, or this other (laughs) shiny path that we know and love, but I didn't really understand much about at the time. Um, so that took a lot of, you know, at 17, a lot of, um, exploration realistically and that was quite tough because you know I didn't I didn't know really where to look I just knew that I had to find a different way to treat how I was feeling Um, so that led me down a path of actually starting to study at Endeavour College of Natural Health Um, I did my Bachelor of Health Science there in Nutritional Medicine um, and that degree was incredible. Um, and it was something that, you know, I really knew particularly towards the end where we did uh, clinic um, and we were working with um, people from, from the public um, that really being of service to other people and helping them on their health journey was, was what I really wanted to do. Um, so from there, I guess in the industry, you know, I jumped out of uni and was just like, throw me into anything. Um, <laughs> and I went into, um, a technical support role, um, for a particular, uh, functional testing, um, and supplement company in Brisbane. Um, and that was amazing because I really had that sort of hands-on um, approach and, and experience with functional testing that, you know, you and I both love to use with our clients and clinics. So um, from there, that led me into other roles, um, you know, particularly um, in terms of client are facing roles, and then other roles where you know I've really been able to develop, you know, some of my writing skills and content things like that around nutritional medicine and and how people can use that and apply that to their lives. So, yeah, I guess that's sort of been my journey to, journey to date.
0: Yeah, you've had some um, really exciting job opportunities, and it was was it Dutch testing? Is that who yes. you're working with yet? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, so I um, so the company that I was working for, Salem, one of the main tests they used was um, the Dutch test. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do, I love all functional testing options, whether it's stool or, you know, looking at even, you know, we can go down the path of like genetic testing and those sorts of things. Yeah. But Dutch was something that I just, I, I connected with straight away. I had such a uh, an interest in it and then mm-hmm. actually seeing where, um, it supported clients on their journey, um, mm-hmm. and to really show them how they were feeling. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it, the Dutch test was something that I just thought, wow, this is so comprehensive. It was so much more than what we've ever really, um, gotten from other forms of testing, particularly for hormones. hormones so, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so much useful information that comes back from those sorts of tests. And I think, um, I think the other benefit to using that is that a it might confirm something that you already thought or it gives you a bit more information. But from the client's perspective, I think it it often um, becomes less about oh my practitioner's recommended X Y Z, you yes. know, and they can actually see that information on the test result. Absolutely, and I yes. think that really helps compliance, helps motivation, uh, and. That as well, which we see with blood testing. So it's great to be able to get that information um, from hormone testing as well. And then you've obviously, I know, had some very exciting opportunities as well, working with other big uh, companies in clinical roles too. So yeah, very exciting career journey to date.
1: Yes. Yeah. It has been. And I think some days I kind of think of it and I'm like, I'm, you know, I think we sometimes feel we're only just beginning in some yes. aspects and <laughs> every day, I think, you know, the beauty of being practitioners in this industry is we learn something new every day. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's just an ever evolving journey for us and our clients. So yeah. yeah.
0: And I do think sometimes you have those moments of like, the more, you know, the less, you know, <laughs> right. And <laughs> completely, yeah, yes. I definitely have those, days where I'm like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's always good to have that lens. Um, yes. and then tell us a bit about, I guess the, um, key either conditions or, um, issues that you love working with in clinic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think, you know, sort of going on from my love for Dutch test insulin mm-hmm. <laughs> naturally just um, really pointed me in a direction of um, hormonal conditions, um, particularly in women. Um, it's, it's one of those areas where, you know, depending whether it's something like a PCOS or an endometriosis or, you know, even, you um, Uh, thyroid conditions, you know, that's another area. And actually my personal experience was um, at 17 having hyperthyroidism that was Mm -hmm. never picked up. So that was, you know, obviously led me down that path Um, as well. I would say, you know, as well within the Dutch test, we know it really looks at from a perspective of our adrenal health. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really do find naturally I gravitate towards, um, you know, people that are sort of, struggling with that sort of not just adrenals but what we call the HPA axis mm-hmm. I would say that's probably a real area of focus for me um and the f- sort of fatigue states that come from there so HPA yeah. axis dysfunction and as you would agree with me um Solen, that's everywhere you know yeah it's come. everyone <laughs> it's everyone it's everywhere yeah yeah it's um so you know and depending where people fall on that spectrum mm-hmm. um it's really interesting for me to sort of find them where they're at and and try and Uh, you know, improve their sort of health journey from there. So yeah, that's probably something other than that, I really take an approach to my nutrition that um, is is really sort of taking away a lot of the complexities. I like Mm -hmm. to really focus from a simplistic approach. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation in terms of particularly from, you know, uh, how we, fuel ourselves and what foods are you know going to support our health or not so you know I like to sort of take away uh, that confusion for my clients um, and really sort of present them with with something that is just a simple but very intentional whole foods lifestyle approach so Yeah. um, yeah that's that's a really really big focus for me and I'd say you know from there things like nutrient deficiencies and those sorts of things will will be things that we're always identifying and correcting Mm -hmm. and and going on that journey, um, you know, with our patients overall.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think the adrenal health side of things is so important and I think um, does pose challenges in working with clients as well because sometimes you can literally feel them roll their eyes at you when you're telling (laughs) them about how their nervous system is impacting things. And I'm thinking about a client that I actually spoke with yesterday Yep. Um, and she came to see me with a bunch of different health goals, but wrapped up in that was weight loss. And, um, overall yep. over the last four months, she's feeling amazing in so many other respects, like she's sleeping well now and her mental health is much better and all of that, but she hasn't lost any weight yet. And we've sort uh-huh. of gone through the process of going, well, it's not your thyroid, it's not your insulin, you know, ruling out all of the things that it could possibly be, um, And really what we're left with is, you know, your nervous system. And so I was asking her, you know, what her impression of stress is and and whether she thinks that could be part of it. And she said, you know, I'm not a really very stressed person, but I have had, you know, I got pregnant at 21 and then I ended up, by the time I was in my early 20s, I had like four kids under five and my husband used to work away. And I've basically like never, ever, ever had a minute to myself because I just have worked and been there for the kids. Uh uh And she's like, I just don't ever stop, you know, and that in itself. And then we talked about, you know, those signs and symptoms of cortisol dysregulation where, you know, you might be waking up tired, wired at night, all of that kind of thing. And she said, oh yeah, that's definitely me. And she said, now that you mention it, you know, my trainer at the gym had actually mentioned this months ago, but I just rolled my eyes at him (laughs) 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 Like, yeah, most people do. And I think it's because it's not as easy as, yeah, just take a supplement and like, you know, see you later. We'll correct that deficiency and you know, you're off, which I mean, correcting deficiencies is obviously not that simple either, but um, it's not easy. It's not easy because it's in your mind. A lot of it, it's not, um, yeah, yeah, a little bit different.
1: <laughs> uh, and that's exactly it. And, you know, I laugh because, and, you know, this is where I think as practitioners, once again, we go on our own health journey to better understand. You know uh, that within ourselves, but then that within you know what our clients are experiencing, mm-hmm. and it, it's been a huge uh, point for me in terms of the impact that stress is has mm-hmm. had on my health conditions in the past, yeah. um, and actually creating that change on a, on a deeper level. So mm-hmm. you know, I know it's it, I've had those moments with myself with the eye roll moments. You know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> oh me do. too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I had to do yeah. a test to actually acknowledge that I was that kind of person. I think because I sound. Maybe yeah. I sound calm. People <laughs> think I'm calm. I'm like, no, in here it's not it, like that. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, if you could see inside yeah, my brain, you I'm could not- see. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look yeah. like that Zen in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's I think the benefit of testing as well is that um, we can also you know provide that information to our clients too. So I think yeah. that sort of leads in nicely as a nice segue to today's topic, which is all around perimenopause because nervous system. Yeah. Um, is a huge part of that particularly i think in that age demographic Uh um where you know obviously it's a different age for all women really um their journey will start at different times but generally speaking it's let's say around like 35 to 40 45 that's when they're potentially going to be entering that um phase of life of perimenopause Uh and typically that's going to be a time in their life when they're juggling a lot of things, whether it's, you know, if, if, um, if they have had kids, you know, it's going to be kids probably work, trying to get back into the workforce, um, managing the home, all of these different things, doing all the things for everyone and very little for ourselves. So I think in this age bracket in particular, um, nervous system is a huge, huge focus. Um, so I guess to start out, um, on this topic, I guess we'll start with the different um, the different stages or I guess even like probably back it up a little bit, how you know that perimenopause is starting, like what are those signs? Because I think yeah. also with this um, in clinic, I find that a lot of women are quite resistant to hearing that word. Yeah. And yeah. I have a question in our intake form that says something like, are you approaching... Um, perimenopause or menopause. Uh, And quite often I'll read through the intake and find that no has been selected, but we would potentially think otherwise based on those symptoms. So, um, I guess, yeah, from your end, what are some of those signs and symptoms that, that, um, that perimenopause might be on the horizon?
1: Yeah, no, it's um, a great question, Celene. And, you know, we'll get into as well. I I really like what you said around the resistance. I think, you know, we'll talk about that later, but I I think as a general view in society, things like perimenopause and menopause have quite a um, negative Mm. uh, stigma attached to them. Um, So, you know, I've got some thoughts around, you know, why that is, but to jump to the symptoms, absolutely. I would say that this is where it can vary quite a lot. And that's why trying to pinpoint perimenopause is quite a gray area. But I would say for women, if in particular, there's been what we would say a new onset of a regular menstrual cycle. So if someone had previously been having quite regular menstrual cycles And then they've had a new onset of irregular menstrual cycles. That's a huge one. Within that as well, that's where we see the heavy or longer menstrual flow come into play as well. Mm -hmm. So once again, if women have had quite regular, uh, you know, quite normal menstrual cycles, not really heavy flow, you know, maybe only bleeding for four to five days. If that starts to stretch out, that's another mm. sign and symptom. Another one is actually on the flip side, shorter menstrual cycle. So some women can actually have 25 days or less in terms of that menstrual cycle. So that's where we start to see, okay, that shortening of the um, luteal phase specifically. Also too, what is really common, and this is probably where I would say we direct most of our attention to in society is things like your hot flushes. Yeah. So the hot flushes, um, but as well within that night sweats. Mm -hmm. So this is where they're different too. You know, I think sometimes we kind of group those together, but that, you know, often we see that the hot flushes are something women will definitely experience more, uh, throughout the day. They may wake up with them, but then night sweats is just that general, Mm -hmm. uh, night sweating, you know, throughout the night waking up that sort of drenched type feeling, you know, women will report that. So, um, As well with that, we also look to things like sore, swollen or um, lumpy breasts. So that can be new onset symptoms. So when we think of like that premenstrual syndrome, Mm -hmm. women may start to get some more of those symptoms, Um, of course, in line with things like night sweats and hot flushes is issues with our sleep. So that could be as well. Some women might have you know what they describe as really good sleep, and then they start to have this onset of insomnia, so that can be another perimenopause you know type symptom as well you know more are uh, slightly not as connected, but there still still can be signs things like headaches and migraines. Um, of course, it goes without saying weight gain. So weight yes. gain is
0: <laughs> is a huge one. Um, Probably the the one that I think women are most challenged by.
1: Absolutely. And I think you would agree, Celine, what we hear is the weight gain without the changes to um, exercise or eating. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so women will come to me and say, Danielle, my diet hasn't changed, my exercise hasn't changed, but now I'm putting on weight and I don't understand why. Um, so that's a huge one with, with perimenopause. Mm-hmm. And then another one which kind of is once again not spoken about enough, I don't think, and not until women are actually well into menopause is really that sort of um vaginal dryness realistically, yeah. so with that drop in estrogen um that can be a really difficult symptom for women to navigate, and once again, I don't think there's enough support and education mm-hmm. around that
0: so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think um when we think about I guess like the the key stages of menopause or perimenopause, I should say um. I think first I should mention like it can last the average length is seven years for perimenopause to last, which is a long time. Like, you know, you're going through menopause could be seven plus years away, but you could be experiencing signs and symptoms far earlier than that. And I would say one of the earliest signs I tend to see um, would be, like you said, the change in cycle regularity and heavy periods. Um, and when we look at the hormonal changes that are happening across or the the major, there's obviously a lot, but the major hormonal changes that we're thinking about across that sort of lifespan of perimenopause in those early phases, it's um, a reduction in progesterone or sort of yes. like a, a loss of progesterone. And so that particular um, hormonal change is where we would expect to see symptoms like the heaviness and, you know, the irregularity, which might be because some cycles, you're ovulating, and some cycles you're not. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think what I personally see a lot of is women might go to their GP or their doctor, and the first thing that they're offered is the marina mm-hmm. for that.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. And and this is where hope, hopefully this is a good segue to, <laughs> to open up that conversation around something like the marina, as we know, is a progestin only. Yep. Um, IED and mm-hmm. so this is where I guess from a conventional medicine perspective they go okay great so yeah we do uh, identify that maybe progesterone is declining mm-hmm. let's give you something that secretes that you know uh, synthetic progestin but as we know that isn't actually on a level that our body is producing its own progesterone. So it's, yeah. not, it's not the same. Yep. So a, from a progesterone to a progesterone that we produce from the ovaries is not the same. Yeah. Um, and so we also know the challenges that come with women that then go on mm. the marina um, thinking that it will solve these issues
0: but it doesn't it doesn't yeah yeah Yeah. and then that sort of next stage or if we think about like stage two is where we would see more likely some of those symptoms like you mentioned maybe the hot flushes or the changes in sleeping patterns which is where we would start to see that okay we've lost a bit of progesterone initially and then our estrogen is starting to kind of go like up down left right and sideways (laughs) yes um And that I think is probably the more common time when women would go like enough is enough. Like I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to go and get help because they're not sleeping anymore. They're probably, you know, possibly started to notice some weight changes by then Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and they're probably really moody and like apologizing to the rest of their just family all the time yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think that middle section is probably the most common time when women go and actually seek help yes. um and so i probably would just like to flag that you know like get help sooner than that don't wait for it to get to that point That's um it. because i think with the heavy periods and things initially or the irregular cycles it's maybe not as um, as pressing for yes. some women. Um, mm-hmm. but then they enter that sort of next stage and it's like, I just can't take this anymore. I'm going to go and finally do something about it. Definitely. Um, and then the last stage really, like once you've gone through menopause, that's when your estrogen actually really starts to like sort of lower, um, permanently. Um, and of course you haven't actually gone through menopause until 12 months after your last period. So I think um, that's often misunderstood as well, that it has to be 12 months after you've had a bleed um, for it to yes. be technically classified as menopause.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that and that's exactly it. And I see there's once again, that sort of gray area. Yeah. And the thing as well with, you know, I know women will go to their doctor and sort of say, look, I'm concerned that I'm either in perimenopause or even, you know, maybe post-menopausal, I've mm. actually had women sort of say that. It's like, oh, well, I, you know, yeah, I haven't had a period for a while. Maybe, you know, I, I am in that stage. But the thing is, too, there's no actual test for perimenopause. No. Mm. And so that's another, you know, another issue that women face you know, and realistically as well, when we sort of define menopause, it's that blood test particularly to show that increase in the FSH and LH. Mm. So follicular stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, when they are increased and particularly that FSH above a certain level, a doctor may then go, okay, it looks like you're in, you're in Mm. menopause now. But until that point, women don't have that sort of barometer in terms of testing to say, yeah, you're in perimenopause and yeah. this is why you're experiencing what you're experiencing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And then I guess like just quickly going back to when we're talking about those different stages, so sort of losing progesterone or having, um, you know, maybe having some cycles and not others yeah. and then that fluctuating estrogen, it's interesting when you look at like our other conventional treatment option might be something like HRT. Yes. Hormone replacement therapy. And if that is um, you know, estrogen only, it's missing, you know, it's really kind of like disregarding those early changes which are being caused by a reduction in progesterone. And so I think that's why some women wouldn't respond very well to something like HRT.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's another thing too, so then we have to consider when when we're adding in something like HRT, particularly that sort of estrogen, Mm. um, you know, that's another thing for the body to try and metabolise. And so it's almost like it's going through all of these changes. The, You know, our liver's probably not great, our thyroid's not great when we're Mm. in this sort of perimenopausal stage. And then we're throwing in some hormone replacement Mm. therapy for the body to go, okay, what do I do with this now? I've got to Mm. metabolise it and pass it through the liver and all of those factors which... And it may not, as you said, Celine, be hitting the actual requirement, which is actually a low progesterone. And so and then we know even backstepping from there, it's like, well, what really can have that depleting effect on progesterone? It's stress. It's it's that impact. You know, when we look at the HPA and the HPO axis, the impact between the adrenals and the ovaries, you know, if stress is there, it will always sort of uh, be at um, the detriment of Mm progesterone production, particularly, Mm -hmm. you know, in that luteal phase. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, let's segue, I guess, into like some of those things that we would be looking at in clinic, I think stress. And then another really big one would be alcohol.
1: Massive, massive. And I think alcohol, there's actually been some studies done around this, that women that particularly drink alcohol in that luteal phase, um, of their cycle can really have that impact on Mm. shortening the cycle because, as we know as well, Salen, alcohol has that estrogenic effect in the mm-hmm. body. So alcohol is pushing up estrogen, it's reducing that progesterone and it's impacting our nervous system. So, yeah. you know, you kind of got that, you know. <laughs> and the irony is like cycle.
0: the more stressed you are probably, the more you're going to reach for that glass of red or something in yeah. the evening. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just not helping. And I think particularly in women where we might see some of those um, like histamine issues as well. Yes. That's where it's really going to exacerbate things. So if you're getting things like hay fever, allergies, the itchy yeah. eyes, all those sorts of things, um, painful periods, the heavy uh-huh. periods, all of that, um, alcohol is going to be a huge factor yeah. in that. Yeah.
1: Um, and we're yeah. not when we're, we're often not people's best friends when we no. say alcohol has to go. Um, but I can't tell you the amount of times that women when they either reduce their intake or completely have a break from alcohol, how much they notice their symptoms change. So it's, it's a big one. But, I, you know, outside of alcohol, then it goes without saying, you know, along that sort of dietary intake. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is looking at women's diets. Sugar is a massive one, you know, that can be a huge determinant of some of these symptoms um, and hormones being affected. So, you know, sugar is a big one. Um, I would say as well then, particularly for women, just in general, is that lack of protein, lack mm-hmm. of good quality fats, um, you know, and this is something to note that as women go into that sort of menopause stage you know as bone mass decreases muscle, uh, muscle mass decreases that need for protein and that connective tissue support is so vital yeah. um and so many women are deficient in that
0: yeah i think that's across the board for women in general for some reason do under eat protein i mean i've spoken about i pretty much speak to that with every client i'm gonna uh-huh. say nearly every client yeah. it's very very rare that i'd be like wow you're Amazing, you're hitting all your protein requirements, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is a generalization, but I think that women are, for some reason, much more prone to under-eating protein than men for whatever yes. reason. don't know if it's like a cultural thing or what have you, but I would also say that in this particular um, sort of age bracket, if there are any concerns around weight, um, often... Uh, there's a bit of a fear around like fats and proteins and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do sometimes get questions like, Oh, you're getting me to eat all this extra food. Like, are you sure I'm not going to put on more weight? Yep. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, a whole other conversation where we're looking at how your body's actually responding to those foods. Like, is it, you know, triggering insulin and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thyroid, I think is another um, probably one we could do a whole other podcast around as well, but <laughs> um, you know, with those hormonal changes, it is a really common, um, period of time where thyroid conditions are, I'm going to say identified (laughs) rather than developed. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to say that there were probably, you know, signs and symptoms there earlier. It's just that due to inconsistencies or I guess difficulties and barriers with getting testing, at least in Australia, um, a lot of these time, a lot of the time I find thyroid conditions aren't sort of identified until it's like become a really big blaring issue. Sure. We don't pick up those little wrong way, go back signs early enough. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that would be really, really common as well. And like a lot of the symptoms of perimenopause do cross over with thyroid as well, right? They like do. The heavy yeah. bleeding, the mood changes, the temperature changes, <laughs> um, yes. the weight changes, the weight changes. Absolutely. There's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of overlap. And I think that's also the beauty of testing, right? Like that's yeah. why we do testing because, um, we aren't like, telepathic mind readers with your body, we have to actually look at that information um, to understand a bit more about what's going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it is really, like you said, Selena. it's looking at, you know, something like thyroid. If a woman had those sort of underlying thyroid issues, you know, years before she started to get to perimenopause, um, you know, it's, it's just another factor that we have to go, okay, what is actually going on with your thyroid? Because we also in conjunction, this is where these hormones are not isolated. They're all working together or they're trying to at least. Um, so so we need to find exactly what's occurring. And that's why I think, you know, it's not uncommon to really, if we want to do such a, a very comprehensive, deep dive into women's hormones, we're doing pathology, we're doing a full thyroid profile we're doing maybe a dutch test yeah um we're getting the full picture essentially
0: yeah yep. yep. yeah i think um that testing is really important because otherwise we do have blind spots and obviously yep. everyone has a different budget for testing which we can obviously um we can work with and also mm-hmm. prioritize you know what we think we're using our best judgment to identify what would be the most appropriate sort of um, testing to get. But we use labs like iScreen um, for Mm -hmm. thyroid testing because a lot of the time it can be difficult to get that approved. Um, I am finding a little bit more openness to doing antibodies nowadays, um, but still a lot of difficulty getting like a T4 or a T3 or anything like that. Or even a reverse T3. Or I even mean. a reverse T3. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, if I've asked for that, yeah. they're, do- they're, they're told, you know, I don't actually know what that means. Um, yes. Yeah. Which is fine. I've had that. <laughs> Okay. And then the test comes back high,
1: and then we're going, okay, well, that was a really important piece of information. So, yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but I think main things we look at is obviously like the foundations. So obviously, we look at your nutrition foundations, what you're eating day to day in terms of, um, I think inflammatory foods is a big one, Massive, yeah. um, making sure that your nutrition is set up for blood sugar control. Oh, so that's going to be mm-hmm. proteins, fats, fiber. Yeah. Um, and then when I do blood testing, I'll always get an insulin too, mm-hmm. um, because with that, change in estrogen, you are more prone to becoming insulin resistant. So again, I'm thinking that, you know, in some of these clients there there might already be a little predisposition towards insulin resistance and these hormonal changes have been enough to kind of push someone over the edge. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll always be looking at that. And then, you know, a big piece for a lot of people is that nervous system regulation, insert eye roll. (laughs) And obviously one of our favorite supplements for that just basically would be a uh, magnesium or something oh, like that. Absolutely. In conjunction think... with the lifestyle strategies, of course. <laughs> exactly. Like we can't, once again, we can't just use the supplement. But...
1: Yes. Um, uh, magnesium is for me, honestly, celine Just um, it's a mainstay for every woman from yeah. a hormonal perspective, from a nervous system regulation perspective. It's that kind of mineral that, uh, for the most part, we need to be supplementing with. Yeah, um, yeah you definitely. Know, it, it's just something that, with the level of stress that we're all under in our sort of normal. Mm-hmm modern world with with how much we are constantly on the go which seems yes. you know once again something we've accepted um <laughs> <laughs> which you know that's a whole other discussion but mm-hmm. it's you know something like magnesium is continuously being utilized by body yes. it's involved in over you know 400 different enzymatic reactions so you know if we think of that one thing that we can at least put back in, Mm -hmm. um, and use a good quality therapeutic supplement, you know, so obviously a good form of magnesium, then by all means, that's got to be the foundation. I would say. Yes,
0: definitely. Um, and then other things we would look at, I guess, would be like correcting nutrient deficiencies. I mean, I know we're obviously always doing that as nutritionists, but yes, Things like, you know, your iodine deficiency is obviously Uh going to exacerbate symptoms like breast tenderness. Um, We want to take that into consideration with any potential low thyroid function Uh um, and all of that kind of thing as well. And that can also reduce blood loss and these things. So we really do um, a full nutrient profile on all our clients, but we would do that, especially in perimenopause. Um, I think ruling out um, thyroid issues is really, really important. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm going to say as well that I guess to sort of like tie a bow on it all that when you are when we've sort of identified that you're going through that that maybe latter stage of um, perimenopause slash menopause, um, we know that estrogen is declining uh-huh. um, or is low by that point. I think it's really, really important to Start consider considering how you're going to be proactive about your bone density.
1: Absolutely, that's a huge one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that's where you know, I, you know, I would say, Celine, that's where women realistically should be looking for and asking for things like a bone density. Yes,
0: yeah. You know, I couldn't agree just... more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's let's make that more of a norm. Realistically, yes. not because... waiting till you're seventy as per no. the guidelines. Yeah, until yeah. you already yeah. have osteopenia. Yep. Yeah, um, no, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's lot. really important. So, what we know from declining estrogen levels is that estrogen actually helps to stimulate our um, osteoclasts, they're yes. called, um, yes. the bone cells, and they that then allows our body to create new bones. So, as we're losing estrogen, we're essentially losing bone mass so we run Uh the risk of losing bone mass so we do um and as per the sort of like standard recommendations or standard of care um in australia it's generally not recommended unless you have signs or symptoms that you would be getting a DEXA or a bone density scan until the age of 70 which to be honest is just too little too late um, Absolutely. Uh-huh. you know, if you've gone through menopause at age 50, that's potentially 20 years where you could have been really proactive if there were any early indications there. Um, and you've essentially lost that time, you know, you can't turn back time and it can, yep. I like it's essentially like, can be, you know, early fatality really. Absolutely. That's very serious. Uh-huh. Um, and the things that we would look at around that would be, um, you know, some sort of resistance training. So the earlier that you can get yes. into that kind of um habit creation, the better uh-huh. vitamin D and calcium are obviously Absolutely. really important too. But I think your biggest strategy is going to be lifting things uh-huh. and resistance training. It doesn't mean you have to become like, you know. You don't uh, have to become, you know, in the gym every day. No, oh, no, no it's no, not no, like no. a gym junkie yeah. or anything like that. No, no. Um, but, yeah, some form of resistance training or weight or pressure on the bones is really, really important. And even exactly. if that means if this is, like, really new to you, even if that means, I think, going and getting a few PT sessions if you need to and getting uh-huh. some kettlebells or some dumbbells and things like that that you can have at home yep. um, and learning what type of exercise you can do at home, that's what you need to do, right? But Absolutely. the earlier you can develop uh-huh. that habit, the better. Yeah.
1: And I think that's, again, where we shift the focus um, with exercise too, Selen, because I think as well what I see with women in this sort of perimenopausal stage is that because of the weight gain, because of the struggles, they're pushing themselves even more. They're doing the high-intensity classes that, you know, like they are burning the candle at both ends, literally. And just sort of looking around going, I don't feel better. If anything, I feel worse. Exactly. And this, yeah, this is where, you know, like reframing why we're doing the exercise and movement we're doing, like, you know, realistically, if we know that we're trying to prevent mm-hmm. osteopenia and osteoporosis down the track, of course, we're going to hopefully be more inclined to engage in those weight bearing activities that don't have to be strenuous. They just have to be things that we do consistently, you know, and whether it's a 20 minute session, it doesn't have to be a lot, but it's where you're actively engaging those muscles and Mm -hmm. sort of strengthening, strengthening the bone within that, that's going to set you up so much better through that aging and postmenopausal
0: process. So yeah, definitely. And from a nervous system point of view, far better for you than trying going and, like, thrashing yourself in the gym, right? Yeah. Um, And I think the age that you start perimenopause is going to vary greatly, often the age that your mum went through menopause or perimenopause. Mm is an indication for you and there's also I believe some research around when you had when you finished having kids and breastfeeding as well that can change yeah. that timeline for you so mm-hmm. if you had kids really early um, there's a greater chance that you would go through menopause earlier which mm-hmm. makes sense right when we think about that sort of hormonal timeline exactly. um, so I guess the key takeaways are that you can start these strategies like ideally before you start experiencing (laughs) symptoms like the things that we've talked about, nervous system regulation, looking Uh at your things like your alcohol intake, so basically looking at your liver health, Mm -hmm. correcting your insulin and nutrient deficiencies. Like, Don't wait until you have symptoms to start introducing these strategies because the reality I think is that perimenopause doesn't have to be this horrifically awful Mm -hmm. time that you're trying to survive. That's Uh how a lot of women would describe it. Um, it doesn't have to be like that, but you're probably if, especially if you experience, I think symptoms of hormonal imbalance when you were younger. So obviously if you have had, you know, your twenties and thirties of having horrendous periods and horrendous symptoms, that's just not going to magically disappear. When you go through perimenopause, it's more likely that you are going to experience a lot of the symptoms that we've talked about. So that's where, Uh you know, if you're younger and you're listening to this and you know perimenopause is a while off and you experience symptoms like let that be your sort of call to action to go and address that (laughs) yes um but equally if you are experiencing that new onset of symptoms like don't wait for ages to get help for that start addressing it now
1: Absolutely, I think the biggest thing, hopefully, that women can take away from this, Selene, if they're at that point in their life, and you know, you know, realistically looking at that onset for perimenopausal symptoms, it can begin as early as our mid-thirties. You know, yes. so that's not there's women in their thirties listening to this. This is not, you know, something that's far away for us, Yeah. you know, so take that action now, but it's the biggest thing as well is asking for support yeah. and knowing where to go. And obviously, you know, from, from a holistic health perspective, we've got so many tools within our you know, toolbox to help women on this journey and, and to really go into that deeper investigations that, mm. you know, they may not get, or we know where they will not get from a conventional, mm treatment option Um, you know so it's it's just open up you know really opening up the conversation about these things and asking for support and doing the steps to really sort of prevent perimenopause like you said being um this awful thing that women have to experience and endure I think that's the kind of like connotation isn't it it's like women just have to put up with it get through it you know all of the hot flushes the night sweats all of the symptoms that come with it you know it's almost like women are told there's no way out of that Mm. but they're they're absolutely is, you know, so I think it's, it's starting sooner rather than later, you know, yeah. start, start today. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I feel like that ties a nice bow um, <laughs> on this topic. Yeah. And yeah. before we finish up, I guess for anyone listening, Danielle is now um, practicing at Celine Douglas nutrition. So she's taking on new clients, which is very exciting.
1: Very exciting. So, so, so happy to be on board.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very happy to have you, definitely. Um, So at the moment, your consulting day at the date of recording is Tuesday. Um, That may change. That may change, of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can book in through the website or you can obviously um, book in a complimentary consultation with Danielle as well. So all the links for that are in the show notes um, or via the website, which is just com. So yeah, definitely book in with Danielle. She's amazing, obviously with perimenopause. And as you mentioned, any of those other conditions that you love treating, so adrenal issues, thyroid conditions, yeah. um, and really any sort of reproductive or hormonal yeah. states. Yeah. yeah. yeah, Beautiful. So excited. Thanks so much. Yes. <laughs> no worries. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on very soon.
1: Yeah, I would love that. It's been so, so much fun and I can't wait for the next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice. So please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.